are this morning, continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn them open to Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got your guides, I encourage you to go ahead and get them open uh, to week chapter 6, I believe it now is. <laughs> Better forever uh, is the subject of our um, focus this week. Better forever. And are you excited? Anybody excited? Great. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse uh, in verse 13, I am going to go ahead and tell you, um, we're going to walk through this section by section this morning because it's a larger passage of scripture. We're going to be in Hebrews 6, 13, all the way through 7, 28. And um, I want to go ahead and kind of lay the foundation as we walk through the structure of the argument together in a second as we will continue in our scripture reading. But um, this morning, by the way, I didn't know the guide number and I put this kind of a mystery hunt. <laughs> you go find it in the guides. That's what I was trying to say. Um, but... We are going to be walking through this. Hebrews, if you haven't been here, um, just as a reminder, is all about Jesus. It is a book that in every, every single uh, turn uh, in this book, every single chapter, the, the author is exhorting us to, to recognize that Jesus truly is better in every way. I don't know a lot about where you come from, but I do know one thing is that God loves you. He created you, and your life is meant for a relationship with him on a daily basis to live in relationship with the living God. And he loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this book is just a book that exhorts us to pay attention to the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus in every way. He is better. Like the song that we have been singing, he is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Given any single choice that you could ever make in life in, in face of any temptation or any competing interest, in the face of any circumstance, you can turn to Jesus and find that he is better. Your soul was created. Your soul was created for this, that you might know Jesus. He is amazing in every single way, more satisfying than you could ever realize. Truly, he's the fulfillment of all that God had promised, and he can fulfill you. Make your heart believe. God, make my heart believe. That's the prayer we've been praying through this series. Make my heart believe. Would I be connected by my faith to how wonderful Jesus is and be satisfied in him? We're going to continue that this morning as I pray and we get into our argument uh, that the writer makes together of why he is better forever. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and that it speaks to us right now. We need you, God. And Lord, as we continue in worship today, Lord, we are not uh, taking a pause button from just the, the praise that our hearts are bringing. Lord, I just pray that as we turn to your word, that Lord, I could just proclaim your greatness, that your spirit would work through me and your word to just stir our affections for you, Lord Jesus, and that we might be more fully surrendered and just trusting and satisfied in you than before we came in today. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and give you our main point this morning. If you've got something to write with, and everybody should in some way, you can go ahead and write it down. We are in the section of talking about the supremacy of his priesthood, but here's our main point today. A little bit more lengthy, um, but... I've written the main point today that if you could get a hold of this main point, you can understand the entire section of scripture that we are looking at today. In fact, we're just going to walk through the main point because it's structured in the exact same way that the argument is structured in this section. God has guaranteed that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. God has guaranteed that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. He alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. God has guaranteed that Jesus live forever as a perfect priest. He alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. All right, Let's gonna, we're going to start the section by talking about that God has guaranteed. God has made a guarantee to us, and that's how um, we're going to walk through this. Again, I've, I told you the main point's going to kind of be symbolic of the structure of this passage. So we're going to walk through this first section of Scripture starting in chapter 6, uh, verse 13, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter because it's all dealing with this guarantee. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely 
I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God makes us a guarantee that he is able to save through Jesus. Remember last week, uh, the section that we came out of was a warning. It was an exhortation that we need to keep making progress. But he also kind of was transitioning to help us know that if we had put our trust in Christ, if we had truly been surrendered to him, that he was able to keep his promise. He goes, you know, I hope for you better things because I know your heart in the Lord. And he's kind of coming behind it as he transitions argument in this section to kind of help us know how sure we can be that God is a God who can and will save all who trust him. I know that um, in my life, anybody ever have trust issues? Okay, a few of you are courageous enough to nod your head, kind of, um, which tells me that the rest of you have major trust issues because <laughs> you couldn't even trust me to ask you that question. Um, I know personally in my life, I have had trust issues. And I know some of that stems out of brokenness from my past. Some of it stems out of uh, pain, disappointment that I've experienced. Some of it stems out of my own issues. And like Lara, thing one that she was talking about earlier, I have issues too. We all have issues. Um, But I know that many people, many of us, perhaps most of us, have trust issues. And... You're going to explore this some more this week in small groups as to why that is. But one of the things that I really believe is we have trust issues because, honestly, our trust goes out related to the perceived dependability of the thing that we're considering trusting. (laughs) Dependability of the other affects our ability, our willingness, our release uh, to trust. Would you all maybe identify with that? And God... Ask us to trust him. I mean, you hear that from me every single week and you hear that through the pages of scripture. God invites you to trust him. In fact, salvation depends on this complete giving over, release, total surrender of your heart and life into the hands of God. And I think he wants you to know because he knows the tendencies and the waywardness and the brokenness of our own past and our own hearts. I think he wants you to know. In fact, I know that he wants you to know because that's what this whole passage is about, that he is a God that you can trust. You can depend upon him with your whole life. He's not a shaky God. He's not, he's not a God who's gonna kind of pull a quick one on you. He's not a God that's gonna let up on his word. He He guarantees to you and to me and to all who he invites to trust him that he can be trusted for everything that he has promised. And oh, what a wonderful thing that does to our soul. In this opening section, he tells us there's three things that he goes, you can be guaranteed that he is a God that you can depend on to save you. Three things. One is his promise. Secondly is his oath. And thirdly is his son. All right, you can write those down. His promise his oath, and his son. I don't want to walk through them really quickly together. He starts with talking about his promise. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 13. He goes, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely, this is the promise, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So we see first that God is a God who is willing and able to make promises. It's interesting to me that 
the writer refers to Genesis chapter 22. That is the chapter where Abraham takes his one and only son, Isaac, and walks him up to the Mount of Moriah, puts him on that place of death, the altar. And by God's command, he's preparing to sacrifice his one and only son there as a sacrifice to God. Before Abraham is stopped by an angel of God, a voice who says, stop, God has prepared a substitute sacrifice for you. And he sees the ram caught in the thicket. And instead of Isaac being killed, of course, the substitute sacrifice that God provides uh, is killed. He refers back to this promise and he goes, listen, after that, God said, surely, surely, Abraham, I will bless you and I will multiply you. He's a God who's saying, "By when you trust in me, I can do things through you that are impossible, things that are only of God. There are, there are things that God is willing and able to do for those who trust him and only those who trust him. He is a God of promise. Our life doesn't depend on what we can manufacture, the effort that we can bring, the things that we can do. It depends on the character of God and the willingness of God and the power of God to do things on behalf of those who just simply call out to him in faith and say, God, I can't, but you can. He is a God of promise. Isn't that a good thing about God? And I think for those of us who know Jesus, we understand that truly he is a God of promise to Abraham, that he fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham because truly Isaac was not killed, but instead, when it came time for God to give his one and only son, and he was put on the altar, God didn't spare the axe to come down on his only son. He killed his son. We are the ones that are set free. He is a God of promise, and truly, because of the faith of Abraham and the faith of those who believe like Abraham, who wait on the fulfillment of God's promises, he is able to save, to forgive, to redeem, to give new life to those who trust him. Isn't God a good God? He is a God of promise. But not only a God of promise, secondly, he's a God, he makes an oath. So he guarantees, first, we should trust his promises. We should trust his promises because God is a faithful and pure and true God and there's no promise that God has ever, uh, he's never let down on any of his, his words. But secondly, he makes an oath. He refers to the oath, he says, he had no one greater, verse 13, by whom to swear, so he swore by himself, and he makes a promise. And then in verse 16, it says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Some of y'all are going, what just happened there? He's, he's appealing to us to, to think about the legal system. He's talking about the ancient Eastern Mediterranean system of law, but Honestly, if you look at our system of law, you can understand it too. Y'all ever been to a courtroom and you heard people uh, put their hand on the Bible and they say, so help me God? Anybody ever seen it? Law and order? I mean, come on. I'm going to wait till everybody says yes because I know what you're talking about. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Why do we do that? For a lot of people, it doesn't mean hill of beans anymore. But the reason we do that it's because basically in the court of law, it was the same in their day. It's the same in ours that basically you are appealing to something greater than yourself as a testimony to that what you are promising to say as true is actually true. You're saying on the basis of the character of God, I'm promising you that what I'm saying is true. You're taking yourself, which is lesser, and you're appealing to something that is greater. Does that make sense? Now, God didn't need to guarantee his promise with an oath because it is impossible that God can lie. By definition of his holiness, he cannot say something that is not true. His promise is good enough, but to guarantee for us as a strong encouragement for the hope that's set before us. In other words, to help you to know that when he gets on the witness stand, everything that he says is true. He makes an oath. 
Who does he make an oath to? (laughs) He makes an oath to himself. In other words, there's no one greater to appeal to than the very character of God. And that's why he says that when God desired to show more convincingly, verse 17, to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He takes an oath to himself. So now not only do you have one thing, but it says by two unchangeable things, you have a strong guarantee that he is a God who is willing and able to save all who trust Jesus. Does that make sense? He's saying, I've promised it and I've guaranteed it by the very purity of my heart and character. You can take what I am telling you to the bank. It is good, as good as gold. You can trust me. And then third, he goes, not only am I making a promise, not only am I making an oath, but I'm giving you my son. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We're gonna come back later to some of the practical applications of what we're talking about today. And one of those is that anchor of the soul that we have, but he's pointing our attention to the guarantee. Another sign that we can trust that God is able to do what he's promised and not just as it comes to salvation, but everything that he's promised. Friends, there are a lot of things that you face in life and you gotta turn to the promises of God and you need to know, is he good for his word? And just like Corinthians says, there every promise is yes and amen because of Jesus Christ. And the third and final guarantee that he makes is his own son. He goes, we have a hope that's not just written on paper, friends. We have a hope who is a person and that person's name is Jesus and he is better in every way. And this hope doesn't hang around on the outside of the courts where sacrifices for sins and all these kinds of things are made but never purify the soul. This hope has gone into the very presence of God himself, that place reserved for the holy of holies. This hope has gone into the very presence of God by means of his own blood and secured for us an eternal redemption that will never be taken away. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. His name is Jesus He's our great high priest, friends. And don't doubt the promises of God on the basis of his promise, on the basis of his oath, and on the basis of his son, Jesus, who lived, died for the forgiveness of your sins, put death away by going to the grave and rose three days later and is now in the very presence of God to intercede on behalf of those who trust him. Friends, on the basis of these guarantees, you can put your hope in God. Isn't that good? All right now. Isn't it good? It is so good. You can trust God. On days where it just feels like you're just having trust issues. Where you don't know who to actually be able to release your soul to. Who to actually trust. If it's safe, God is safe, friends. He's completely dependable. Look at the guarantees that he's made for you. Trust him. Trust him. That's what the writer's saying. Then he turns to the next section. So God has guaranteed, let's go back to our main point. We talked about this, God has guaranteed. And then specifically he gets into what he's guaranteed. He's guaranteed that Jesus will be, will live forever as a perfect priest. God has guaranteed that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. Now when we get into chapter seven, this is the chapter that a lot of folks are going, uh, I might just skip that in my daily devotion because there's this guy named Melchizedek. What is that? Melchizedek. Yeah. I'm going to skip it. It looks like a lot of genealogy there and chronology. Not so much application for me. Don't tell me you haven't done that. I know you. When you get to your daily reading plans and it gets to the book of Chronicles, you're like, okay, I'll just skip that one. Um, There's some sections of scripture that are just difficult to understand. This could be one of them. I debated whether or not I should use the name Melchizedek or if I should come up with something more popular. I asked the staff this week what I should call him. The popular vote was Kizzy Dizzy. So 
As a pastor, I decided not to use Kizzy Dizzy. I'm going to stick with Melchizedek because I don't want to um, make scriptures a joke. But um, he's a real he's a real guy. And you get into this section, and there is some real important application here. Because the intention of the author of Hebrews in this section that he's discussing, this role that Jesus has been given as a high priest, it's important that we understand a distinct nature of his role that he's been given as a high priest is eternality. Jesus has been given of the office of a priest, but important, different than other priests, this priest, this priest will live forever as a priest. So there's some proofs of this. Jesus will live forever as a high priest, and he's going to make some proofs. The first proof is this in verses 1 through 10. We're going to see that Jesus is better. You go back real quick. Jesus is from a better priestly line of Melchizedek. Jesus is from a better priestly line of Melchizedek. Let's read verses 1 to 10. It says, For Melchizedek, Kizzy Dizzy, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham uh, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave the tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You're going, hmm? Hmm? Well, this is where I just, I love the Bible. I want you, one of the things I want for you more than anything as a pastor is to learn to love the Bible. When you go, hmm, investigate what the hmm is for, okay? Dig into it. There's a lot here. Melchizedek is an interesting guy. He's only mentioned twice in two places in scripture other than here in Hebrews. One is in Genesis where the original historical account happened in Genesis chapter 14. And the other is in Psalm 110, which he quotes just a second in the passage. So what happens is Melchizedek is like a king priest. We'll talk about that more in a second. But just in case of the historical narrative, like I said, you can look at it. Genesis chapter 14. Basically what happens is in the day there were four kings from the east during Abraham's day who went to fight another set of five kings, including Sodom, Gomorrah, and some others, okay? Well, what happened was when they got to the battle, the four kings from the east actually defeated the five kings, including Sodom, Gomorrah. And when they defeated them, they plundered their cities and they took spoil as part of their victory. Well, what we know is Abraham's nephew, Lot, actually lived in, y'all know? He lived in Sodom. And he was actually taken captive by these victors. He was taken off the dam. Well, Abraham hears about it from a messenger, and he gets really upset, and he actually uh, takes a crusade of fighters, and he moves toward Dan, and he stages kind of a middle-of-the-night battle, and he caught him by surprise. He set those other kings uh, fleeing, and he actually recovered the spoils, including his nephew Lot. And on the way back, Abraham, he actually comes across the king of Sodom and then this guy named Melchizedek. And in that interaction in Genesis 14, what you see is that as Abraham meets Melchizedek, he actually honors Melchizedek. He pays tithes to him. He treats Melchizedek as he was. He's a king and a priest. And Melchizedek turns around to bless Abraham and then to bless God. Now, the interesting thing is the writer of Hebrews pulls out Melchizedek for us and helps us to understand that Melchizedek is actually 
a unique line of priesthood. In fact, it's his line of priesthood that Jesus is going to inherit. Okay? Now, what you probably are thinking, hopefully, is as a student of the Bible, there were two lines of priesthood in the Old Testament. Or really just one other than this one, but most people don't even pay attention to this one. Most people pay attention to the line of Aaron, what we know as the Levitical priesthood, the, the line of Levi, the Levites, okay, which comes from Aaron. But the writer here is arguing to us that Jesus is from a better and more superior line, the line of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Several things make the line of Melchizedek better. First of all, he is a king and a priest, okay? That is unique. Never in Scripture does God allow any man other than this man in the Old Testament to be both a king and a priest. We went through this a couple of weeks ago, but many kings tried to actually take over to become the priest, and God rebuked them, prevented them, or actually condemned them in that effort. But what we know is that Jesus is given to us as both the king of kings and also the prince of peace. So you see in this figure, this Melchizedek, this this type of the one who is to come, this beautiful combination of, of both the king role and the priest role. And not only that, but you see here uh, that his name, it says there in verse 2, the translation of his name is king of, of righteousness. Melech means king, Sedek means righteousness, and he was actually the king of Salem, which is actually the Hebrew shalom, which means peace. So you see that you have this, this wonderful symbol in Melchizedek that he is king of righteousness and that his, his lordship, his, his kingdom actually brings peace. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the one who is to come, Jesus? And not only this, but it says that something unique about Melchizedek, verse 3, he goes, So basically the writer's taking what Genesis does not say and he's, by the Spirit of God, telling us part of what God intended for us. He says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a high priest forever. Does he have a father and mother? Is he some supernatural hero? No, I don't believe that he is. He does have a father and mother, but what he's saying is the Scripture never gives us Melchizedek's genealogy. He appears almost out of nowhere. And in doing so, he is a type, he's a figure, he's a foreshadowing. He's establishing a line of priests that will be superior to the line of Aaron that depends on earthly genealogy. For Jesus came in a similar way, son of God given to man. Does that make sense? Not only that, but he goes, it's proven by their interaction together, you don't lose me, okay? I don't want to lose you. Because <laughs> I know these are the historical details can be interesting, but it's all coming to a point, okay? I know that in the interaction together, basically what he points out, he goes, look, when they were together, see how great this man was, verse 4. To Abraham gave this patriarch the tenth of the spoils. Those who are descendants of Levi receive the priestly office, have a commandment to take tithes from the people of their brothers that they are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have descent received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. Therefore, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. What he's saying here is the Levites were given a wonderful responsibility and honor to receive tithes from people. They were the ones who would receive tithes. But here you have a man, Melchizedek, who's receiving, he's not from the order of Levi. He's from a different order, but yet he is receiving tithes from Abraham. And he turns around and blesses Abraham. And he's saying, this shows the superiority of the line of Melchizedek compared to the line of Aaron. For he makes the argument that the line of Aaron was actually in Abraham's loins. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? But what he's saying is the line of Aaron would come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the, you know, the whole, whole of Israel came that way. So therefore, as Abraham is giving tithe to Melchizedek, he is showing us that the priestly line of Melchizedek, because he is honoring Melchizedek, and 
showing his superiority as he gives him tithes, he is proving to us that his line is superior to the line of Aaron. Therefore, friends, Jesus, as he comes in the line of Melchizedek, you can trust that he comes from a better priestly line, the line of Melchizedek. You got it? Everybody love Kizzy Dizzy yet? Anybody? Or you're just ready to move to the next point. All right. Secondly, we learn this, that the priesthood and the law were not perfect and could not continue forever. The second reason that we know that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest is because the priesthood and the law were not perfect and they could not live forever. Y'all ready? Verses 11 to 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. What we see here is that in Jesus, friends... An old system of law and priesthood, which was not complete. It was not perfect. And by perfect, it doesn't mean that it's ineffective, for it was effective in its time. But what it means is it did not bring the full intention of the desire of God as he wanted for all eternity. In this way, it was imperfect. It was not completely fulfilled. It it just lacked. Because what God desired for all eternity is, is to live in relationship with you. And with me. And in the priestly system of Aaron, that just wasn't fully accomplished. There are many reasons for it. But what he says is there is, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, through the old system, then certainly he would have brought salvation, Jesus, through that, but it wasn't attainable. Therefore, it had to come through a new order. Verse 12, for there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another child from which no one has ever served at the altar. See, what he's saying is Jesus didn't come through that old tribe of Judah. He didn't. But with the change, there came a change in how God was raising up a priesthood that would leave forever. Instead of coming from the tribe of Judah, he brought him from the tribe of Melchizedek. And in doing so, it's far better. And now it's not based on genealogical kind of requirement. Now it's based on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So no longer it comes through genealogy, but it comes through who's the one who will live forever. And the answer is, it's Jesus. Therefore, the priesthood is given over to Jesus. The priesthood and the law were not perfect. They could not continue forever. We know that. Thus, Jesus, who will live forever, is given the priesthood through a different line in Melchizedek so that, it says, verse 19, better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There is a basis now for the full desire of God to come about and that there is a restoration into a relationship with God. The third point we see, the reason that Jesus would live forever as a perfect priest is because third, he promised that a new order would be established. By the way, he's gonna quote here from Psalm 110 again. 
He quoted in this last section from Psalm 110, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is really, really important because what God is saying is even in the time of the law, God is prophesying that there would be a priest who would come to fulfill all the desires of what he intended in the priest to bring full restoration in relationship with God. There would be one who would come to fulfill it, but this one would come not in the line of Aaron, but in the line of Melchizedek. And this one we know has come in Jesus. It's just so beautiful. God has promised a new order would be established, verses 20 to 22. And it says, and it was not without an oath. For these who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Again, he's talking to us about how Jesus makes promises and he confirms his promise with an oath. And he's quoting the same Psalm 110 verse four. And he goes, look, God promised that there would be one to come who would be a priest forever. What's the priest role? To be the one who stands in between our relationship with God and us, who makes intercession for us, who brings restoration to relationship with God by offering by blood for sin. There's one who would come to stand in the role of priest forever. God guaranteed it with his oath. And now we see the fulfillment of that. It's Jesus. No one, no priest in all of history in the line of Aaron was ever able to fulfill this promise for they were from the line of Aaron. But there would be a priest who come from the line of Melchizedek. And what we see is as Jesus arrives, it is he, friends. It is he who God has guaranteed that he would hold the office of priest and he would hold it forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant with man. Isn't it beautiful? Fourth and finally, we see that the priest died. Another reason that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest is we see that in the Old Testament times, the priest died, but Jesus will live forever. Verse 23, it says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a simple argument. So what we talked about a few weeks ago, we talked about Moses, we talked about the prophets. Listen, if you put your trust in any other man, let's say you put your trust in me week in and week out, your relationship with God depends upon me. There's coming a day, friends, I'm gonna die or I might leave this church or you guys might kick me out. What's gonna happen to your relationship with God then? I have met with so many people in their life whose their relationship with God falls apart when somebody else in their life dies because their whole relationship with God was dependent on somebody else's relationship with God. They weren't dealing with God directly. They were putting their trust, their hope, their, their way of kind of intercession in someone who could not really hold their dependability because they were mortal men. God is saying, for all of history leading up to Jesus, there was no priest in the line of Aaron who could live forever. Every single one of them, as good and godly as a man as they were, as much as they helped you in your relationship with God, they could not sustain your relationship with God forever. They couldn't make intercession with you forever. They couldn't counsel you and help you and love you and shepherd you forever. They were just mortal men. They were gonna die. But friends, there is one who has come and his name is Jesus. And he died, but he rose again and he will never die again. He lives and he lives forever. And for those who come to him, friends, you can depend your heart and life for all of eternity on what he offers you in his priestly role. He is different than anyone who's come before. He's better than anyone he's come before because he lives forever. Praise the name of Jesus, our resurrected savior. And finally, he gets into this uh, bit about his character and his work. The final kind of proof that Jesus is better than any priest who's come before, that he will live forever as a perfect priest, is that his character and his work show us that. And we're gonna get into more of this in the weeks to come, so I'm not gonna spend as much time on it, but I'm just gonna 
talk about this briefly. Verse 26, it says, For it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the other high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness is high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, a son who has been made perfect forever. In other words, he says, friends, you go to any other man looking for dependability and you're gonna find brokenness. You're gonna find weakness. You're gonna find that as they help you with the Lord, they first gotta help themselves. There is no perfect one who can help you in your time of need with the forgiveness of your sins and your restoration with God and walk with God. There is no perfect one other than the one that God has given, Jesus Christ. Every other person you go to is beset with weakness such they have to deal with themselves before they deal with you, but not so with Jesus. He is perfect, he is holy, he is innocent, he is undefiled in every way. He doesn't have to deal with anything in himself because he is perfect as he approaches God. So when you come to him, he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking only of helping you. Praise the Lord, we have such a wonderful high priest. And the amazing thing is that this priest will never, ever die. He is this way and he works this way. It will be this way forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever for all who trust him. He is a perfect priest forever. He's trying to get your attention. So we've gone through the arguments, okay? Now I'm gonna come back to your trust issues. Hey, Robbie, you can come in. We're, gonna, we're moving to our close. But the writer is helping us to see that, I mean, among all of the other things that we've seen, right? I mean, he's been holding Jesus up week after week. We've been looking at this chapter after chapter. He's telling us that Jesus is better in every way. And in this passage, he's drawing out something that you desperately need to know. You need to know because of how fickle and frail your heart is and where you search on a daily basis for hope. You need to know something. And we come to Jesus. You don't have to come fearful that he's gonna let you down. You don't have to come wondering if what he offers today is still gonna be good tomorrow. You don't have to come with trust issues. We have a God who is a dependable God. He has given his one and only son, Jesus, out of his great love for you, friend, to serve in the role of priest, not just today or tomorrow, but forever. Like Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for all of time. This is who Jesus is. This is wonderful assurance for your soul. There are three encouragements buried in this passage that I want you to pay attention to. And it's what I put up here in the second part of this main point. It's one thing to know that God has guaranteed that Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. But here's where the rubber meets the road for you. And you need this today. I know that you do. Here's what it means. That Jesus alone offers eternal refuge. Jesus alone offers eternal hope. Jesus alone offers eternal salvation. You see in the passage, verse 18 of chapter six, he says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Did I just make up the word refuge for a cute little main point? No. This is the encouragement that God wants you to have. He wants you to flee to him for refuge. This is an allusion, friends, to the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Many of you don't even know perhaps about the cities of refuge, but it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. There were six cities, six cities in the Old Testament that when you had committed a sin, unintentional murder, that you could flee if you 
you believed there was hope for you not to be condemned in your sin, that maybe the case would go another way, that you could flee to a city of refuge. And if it was found that your, your uh, sin was unintentional, the high priest could grant that you live in that city, meaning that you would be protected from condemnation because typically the families of those who were murdered just had free reign to kill you whenever they saw you to exact justice for what you had done wrong. But there in the city of refuge, the high priest could say, I'm granting mercy, a safe zone, so that as long as I live, you will be safe with me. But guess what? When the high priest died, there was no more refuge. That guarantee was gone. Author of Hebrews says to us, you are the one who's done wrong. You're the murderer. You're the sinner. You're the one who deserves condemnation and you are fleeing. All you have in your lips and in your life is a plea for mercy. You are fleeing for refuge for your life. You deserve death, but you're fleeing for life. And God has appointed a city of refuge for you and a high priest to hear your case. And his name is Jesus. And as you come to him, he doesn't deal with you on the basis of what you've done wrong. He deals with you on the basis of his goodness and his grace, his love and his mercy. By his own wounds, he covers your sin. And friends, what a wonderful thing that we don't have a high priest who's gonna die and then suddenly we're condemned again. We have a high priest who invites us to receive mercy and he lives forever to guarantee that as long as we take refuge there, we will always be safe. Praise Jesus. Come on. Praise Jesus. Go to him to take refuge. Secondly, we see that we have a reason for hope. Verse 19, it says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into a holy place. Friends, we live in a hopeless world. Many people more than ever are walking into depression, hopelessness that's leading to despair. And I know we also live in a world where we need stability. And we look to insurance and stock markets and safe neighborhoods and good schools. We look to political figures, Lord, help us this year. But there are all kinds of things that you can look to to stability. But I'm telling you, deep in your heart, you know, you know that at any moment, any of that stuff could crash and burn and you could be left going, what am I going to do? But Jesus has given himself as a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. It's a beautiful picture for what does an anchor do in a boat? It sinks down and the boat is up in a world of instability and an anchor sinks down to grab hold of the one thing that is firm, that is unmovable, that is steadfast so that no matter what is happening up top with the circumstances, there is a grounding below that will hold you tight and keep you safe. Bible says that your soul has an anchor. It is resting somewhere. The question is, is what it's resting in sure and steadfast? And the answer is, if it is not in Jesus, then no, it's not. But Jesus has been given to us as hope. Hope that is so sure and firm by the promise, the oath, the son of God. Friends, The encouragement is drop your anchor down deep. Get rid of the trust issues. Yes, life is unstable, but there is one who is stable and his name is Jesus. And you can have a sure and steadfast hope if you plant the anchor of your heart and life down into him, his character, his word, his perfect promise. Amen. And third, he says, you can trust his eternal salvation. Not only is he the only one who offers eternal refuge. Not only is he the only one that offers eternal hope, but he is the one who offers eternal salvation. That's why chapter seven, verse 25, he goes, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, there is nothing There is nothing that Jesus cannot do to reconcile you to God. 
There's nothing that he can't mediate. There's nothing that he can't pay the price for. There's nothing that he can't forgive. There's nothing that he cannot restore. There is nothing in your heart and life that he cannot redeem. He is able to save and not just save partially. He's able to save to the uttermost, completely, fully, finally, all who draw near to him by faith. Praise Jesus. He's our high priest forever. God is guaranteed that he will live forever as our high priest. He is able, only he, to offer you eternal refuge, to offer you eternal hope, and to offer you eternal salvation. The reason I put that last clause in there is important, because this is the promise to those who trust him. You do have a role. It's not enough just to know that he's able to do this, but you have to say, Jesus, will you do it for me? I need you, Jesus. I'm running to you for refuge. I'm the one who needs the city of refuge and I believe that you provide it. I'm the one who needs hope in a world of instability. Jesus, anchor my soul in you. Make my heart believe, Jesus, I need salvation. There's no one else who can mediate between me and God perfectly. I need you, Jesus. To those who trust him, he is able. And I pray today he would just give your heart and life to him. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise, Lord. We thank you for all of your goodness, Lord. You live forever by God's faithful guarantee. You live forever as our high priest, our perfect priest. Thank you, Lord, for the dependability of you. God, I know my own heart and I know the hearts of people here. We have trust issues, Lord. A lot of it is because we just can't, can't really figure out if we can release, if it's safe to just give our whole self, our brokenness, our mess, our hope, our future, our dreams, our everything that we deal with. Lord, we, we just wonder who is it safe to be completely resting, released and resting in their arms, Lord. And you are the one who speaks to us. You can depend upon me. I am who I am and I will always be. And this is the role that God has appointed for me. Come, you come. Come for refuge, come for hope, come for salvation. You put your trust in me.